From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We want to save your life if disaster knocks, as it did for so many in Boulder County. Today, tips from a woman who's been at the command post for all sorts of calamities. You're completely stressed, and you might remember on any other given day that you go out to the garage and you pull that rope that has the little red or yellow handle on it, and it disconnects you so that you can manually push up your garage door. But the stress of the situation, sometimes we forget that kind of stuff. Then, a man who lost his home to the Marshall Fire, but not his cat. Since Merlin's been found, I haven't worried about a thing. And later, a reunion teeming with goodwill and history. It's good to see you. Oh, it's great. You're looking great. Thank you to everyone who gives to support the work Colorado Public Radio does every day. Thanks to those who support by donating a vehicle, by underwriting, or by making CPR a part of their estate plans. And thanks to those who volunteer, who share feedback, and who make CPR an important part of their everyday. Thank you for being a part of the Colorado Public Radio community. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner on a day the president visits Boulder County. There's also a new tally of the Marshall Fire's destruction. 1,084 homes gone, seven commercial buildings wiped out. It's unlike anything Mickey Trost has ever seen, and she's seen a lot in her decade as chief spokeswoman for the state's emergency management division. Today, Trost shares tips that might save your life in the next disaster. Mickey, thank you for being with us. I'm glad to be here. How does the Marshall Fire compare to, say, the High Park Fire, Waldo Canyon, Black Forest Fires? Each of those fires is different just because the community is different. The reason for the fire or the disaster was different. This one was astonishingly fast. I know that East Troublesome last year also roared through a community, but this one just had such dense population and people really had little notice um, as this fire uh, was driven by such high winds. Yeah, little notice. And so I wonder, was this the type of disaster that someone could have reasonably prepared for? And I ask that question with future disasters in mind. I think that we have to be prepared for this type of immediate disaster response for whatever hazard causes it, whether it's a fire coming through our community, floodwaters, an active shooter. Um, We've seen almost everything in Colorado in the past 10 years. Let's talk about what preparedness looks like beyond getting the alert. I know that They talk about go bags in fire-prone country, and certainly our understanding of what is fire-prone in Colorado has grown because of this fire. Uh, but, But talk to us about the basic preparedness you'd like to see Coloradans do. Uh, You should first start with a plan. So know where you are going to evacuate to, whether that is I have a house fire and I am evacuating all of my family to the neighbor to the south, and that's where we all meet up. Um, That's low scale. 
for something like this, do you have a location that you are meeting up at so that you can find each other Hmm. out of the area? Uh, Know how you're connecting to the rest of your family. Do you have a chat group set up? Do you all know that you are contacting grandma in a different state and you're checking in with her? Um, And, you know, some of the reasons we say that is because sometimes you lose access to your phones. Sometimes the systems get overloaded and you can't talk to each other. So pre-plan where you're going to meet. Fascinating. Um, Okay. And then the next step would be having those go kits ready. Uh, something that has a minimum of three days supplies for the people in your house, as well as the animals. And you say three days worth of supplies. I think, for instance, of a gentleman that I met just this past weekend who lost his home in the Marshall Fire, evacuated quickly and really had nothing more than the clothes on his back, given how fast he had to move. And, you know, that's something he had to immediately contend with once he evacuated, really having no supplies necessarily to get him through. What about evacuating in and of itself? So we saw traffic jams. We know that perhaps people lose power and their garage doors may not open in the ways that they're used to. Any tips for smart evacuation? So again, it all comes down to practicing. When we have this no-notice evacuation, we're stressed, and we forget those things that we know how to do on a normal day. Hmm. So you're completely stressed, and you might remember on any other given day that you go out to the garage and you pull that rope that has the little red or yellow handle on it, and it disconnects you so that you can manually push up your garage door. But the stress of the situation, sometimes we forget that kind of stuff. Uh, But if you practice it, then that's what helps. You need that muscle memory of practicing. How do I get out with no electricity? And this can help anytime, not just during a fire evacuation. And then also drive those evacuation routes. Uh, So some of our communities actually do um, exercise evacuation drills, and they ask us all to join them in evacuating on a certain day Hmm. and driving to a certain school or church or whatever. I didn't know that. Uh, Please join them in that. Uh, I know that it's not convenient. You know, they really ask you to grab your evacuation bins and go through the whole process. If your community isn't doing that, you can and you should take that responsibility on for yourself. So, know a couple of ways out of your neighborhood. You know, we're people. We like to park in the same place every day, no matter what store we go to or at work or at home. We come in and out of our neighborhoods the same way. So know your area uh, and know a couple of ways to get out of it just in case your path is blocked due to a down tree, down power lines, or some other hazard that's in your path. Right, or a quickly moving fire that's changing directions, something we saw with the Marshall Fire, for sure. You know, and a piece I would say is that I received several phone calls of folks uh, who were asking me how much time they had um, and should they really evacuate. Hmm. Uh, So I would really push you all that when you get that evacuation notice or you notice the smoke in the air and you just don't feel safe, just leave then. Give yourself as much time as you can. Um, If you know, you can see 
the smoke on the other side of the city. You're hearing the wind like we heard. You can always choose to leave early. And if you choose to leave early, then it, it kind of helps, uh, you know, get folks out of the area. But don't wait till the last minute. I'm curious, did the State Emergency Operations Center in Centennial, is kind of the nerve center when there are disasters, uh, did that activate during the fires in Boulder County? Yes. So the State Emergency Operations Center has been activated for the last 700 days because of COVID uh-huh. um, and a lot of other disasters that have happened in the last two years. So when we were notified of the fire, uh, the state staff did push people to focus on that wildfire. Uh, and then we sent two staff members, they're called uh, field managers, to Boulder County Emergency Operations Center to be our liaison back to the state EOC staff. So we worked on site, we still have folks there and worked uh, over the weekend to start setting up those disaster recovery centers, assistance centers, um, make sure the shelters have what they need. I think if you asked people on the U.S. 36 corridor, if they were at risk of wildfire, they probably would have pointed you west towards the foothills. Uh, do you think this should change our sense of who should be prepared where, Mickey? You know, I just go back to we all have to be prepared to respond to every type of hazard. I absolutely think that uh, we have to really look at everything around us when the weather service is issuing 100 mile an hour wind warnings. Uh, we have to think about how does that impact me and what do I need to be ready for? Do you think much about climate change and how it ch- changes the work you do? I mean, you've been in emergency management in some form or another for, for decades. I have, and I know that there is great impact. I am not the right person uh, to talk about the specifics of climate change. But I've seen a lot of devastation in the last 10 years. And, uh, you know, the piece I want everyone to know is that the state of Colorado is working closely with the county, with all of our federal partners to help everyone impacted, and that we really need to connect with you at that Disaster Assistance Center in Lafayette to help you with that. Uh, And that's the best way for you to start recovery. This Lafayette Center is a clearinghouse, really, for local, state, and federal assistance. And do you want to say, uh, just remind folks more specifically where that is in Lafayette? The State Disaster Assistance Center, it's open from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. every day. And it's located at 1755 South Public Road in Lafayette at the Boulder County Southeast Hub. What's the uh, energy and ambiance been like there, Mickey? It's been busy, and that is really good news. Um, People have been signing up for their federal um, assistance. And again, if you're impacted at all, sign up for that FEMA federal assistance, and they will let you know what you qualify for. But there is much more than just programming to help with fixing your home. There's disaster unemployment benefits, crisis counseling, and crisis counseling is available to all of us that were impacted, not just uh, the homeowners. That room's been full and people are getting face-to-face assistance. You can also do it online uh, and over the phone, but it's there in person for you. 
And then also on site are insurance agencies with their representatives helping you file your claims. Insurance coverage is the fastest way to recover. Uh, so make sure that you are filing right now uh, with your insurance companies. And then state and county representatives are on site uh, to help with document replacement, building permits. Uh, how do you mm. clean up safely? We don't want you to get sick or injured while you're trying to clean up your property. So uh, there are resources to help walk you through that as well. It's all in one place. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Mickey Trost, Strategic Communications Director for the Colorado Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. A few words about alerts. There are the ones that push to your phone automatically based on your immediate location. As long as you don't turn those off, you should get them. In many counties, you can also opt into alerts, so you're sure to receive local notifications even if you're out of town. The websites where you can do that, county by county, are compiled at a clunky URL, which I'll say in a moment. First, I'll say this. Denver is currently retooling its opt-in system and hopes to roll it out later this year. Boulder County, meanwhile, has an opt-in system, which it says it's working to integrate more seamlessly with those wireless emergency alerts. Okay, here's that website, dhsem.colorado.gov slash emergency alert. Again, dhsem.colorado.gov forward slash emergency alert. I'll tweet that as well at CPR Warner, along with more information specific to Boulder County. Okay, be right back with disaster preparedness and relief for our four-legged friends. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Emergency minutes and seconds count, but dispatch tapes from the Marshall Fire show that crews lost crucial early minutes because they couldn't find the start of the fire. By the time they did, it was too late. Fire's moving through the property and it's going to be moving into some homes. I'm going to need additional units. CPR News Investigations analyzed those dispatch tapes. You can read what they reveal at CPR.org. When Camden Hall woke up in Superior the morning of the Marshall Fire, the first thing he noticed was the wind. My hot tub lid had flipped over like a storm was rolling in and never thought it'd be the last time I'd look at that place. That afternoon, Hall heard about the fires while he was at work at Eldora Mountain Resort. He didn't think much of them at first, but then... I talked to my landlord and she mentioned that uh, she lives right down the, from my neighborhood and that the neighborhood I lived in was being evacuated, and she couldn't make it to the house in time for Merlin. And yeah, that's when just like panic started to set in and just like hopelessness, too. Merlin, his cat, rescued in 2014 from the Longmont Humane Society. I have a sliding glass door in my bedroom. During the summertime, I always leave it cracked when I go to work so Merlin can come and go as he pleases. and. Now that it's been getting cold, I haven't left it open as much. And that morning when I was going to work, he like went to the door 
wanted to go out. I remember opening it, and it was so windy, he kind of, like, took a step back, and I don't think he went out right away, so I closed it. And then, by the grace of God, I opened it again. I just figured, well, it didn't seem too cold. I'll just leave it open for him. Hall eventually learned that his house was a total loss. But had his cat survived? Being all the way up there, feeling so hopeless and also just so concerned and scared that like I was pretty sure I had left that door open. But even knowing that or like thinking that was most likely the case, I was like, well, did he make it out? Like, I'm sure he's terrified. Someone told Hall about a Facebook group that had sprung up. Boulder County Fire Lost and Found Pets. Hall posted Merlin's picture and went to sleep at a friend's without his home or his cat. I woke up Friday just in disbelief. My phone was just lit up like a Christmas tree. Yeah, everyone's like, they've got Merlin, and I like didn't even, I forgot he was chipped. It felt a bit like magic to Hall. Fitting for a cat named Merlin, he thought. Still, Merlin had been badly burned. Veterinarians at the Northside Emergency Pet Clinic in Westminster wrapped his paws in purple casts to help him heal. Friends and family started a GoFundMe for Camden Hall and for Merlin. The goal? $5,000. In two days, they'd raise double that. Just a bunch of support of people who are willing to help out Merlin. It's just great that people have helped me out. Since Merlin's been found, I haven't worried about a thing. Merlin's burns will take time to heal, but his catitude is strong. They put him in my lap. He's never been really a lap cat. He'll sit next to me, do independent to be on my lap. And within a couple minutes of him being on my lap, like he wanted out. And I let him out on the floor in the, the visiting room. And he walked all around and crawled on this little wicker table. And he was already back to his normal, curious cat behavior. That was, you know, really just such a a joy to see. We know that while Merlin survived, many other critters did not. Another layer of grief in the Marshall Fire. CU Boulder sociologist Leslie Irvin specializes in the role of animals in society and joins us with some perspective on the loss and on preparedness for future disasters. Hi, Professor. Hello, Ryan. Just to be clear, we're going to talk about house pets today rather than horses or livestock, which no doubt have been affected as well. Do we know the scale yet of pets lost or missing in this fire? Is that something that gets clearly tracked? We don't know. And that's something I'm hoping to figure out. That's something uh, we have difficulty knowing because so many pets, um, especially cats, live outdoors from the outset. So we don't know if they're stray or owned pets. So the answer is we don't know, but I hope to find out. You hope to find out. That will be a personal quest for you. How will you find out? Uh, I will do my best by collating data from some of the rescue groups, uh, the, the website that Camden mentioned, Um, the Humane Society of Boulder Valley, Foothills Animal Shelter, and other places. Mm. So it'll be a best estimate. There won't be a precise, definitive figure. What has stood out to you in the Boulder County pet rescue efforts? I would say 
the rapid onset and the inability of people to get home, get into their houses to get the animals, and also the rapid onset due largely to social media of the efforts to rescue. All of this has happened so fast, and I'm so appreciative of the people who who just started that Facebook page. Let's unpack that. So to your first point, that so many people were not home when the fire broke out and couldn't get home in time because of how quickly it moved. Does that say something about our relationship with pets right now? Uh, the idea that they're not as maybe indoor, outdoor as they used to be? It definitely does. Our pets have a different meaning for us today than once upon a time when you just let your dog out in the morning or the evening and cats were strictly outdoor animals. Animals are are part of our families now. You know, they sleep in our bedrooms. They celebrate Christmas and birthdays with us. And um, nevertheless, they're vulnerable because they stay home alone. Some dogs are often locked in a crate all day when we're at work. And this emphasizes a point, your, your first guess couldn't have been more appropriate because I want to re-emphasize what um, one thing Mickey said about the need to connect with neighbors, relatives, to have someone else, an alternative contact who can go in and attempt at least to get the dog or get the cat or to open the door and hope for the best. But we need to make connections on behalf of our animals. Ah, okay, that's really actionable advice. Thank you. And then to the second point, that in a way crowdsourcing the rescue efforts uh, has surprised you. Will you contrast that for me with what you saw after Hurricane Katrina? Because you went to New Orleans in the aftermath of the hurricane. And does, does that kind of social mediatizing of lost and found feel new to you? It does, although it's been it's been evolving over the past decade. In 2005, there was no social media for people to turn to to post pictures of lost pets. It was just getting started with, with Pet Finder. But when I arrived at, at the sheltering facility for animals who'd been evacuated out of the streets of New Orleans, um, that experience, that first depression stay, has stayed with me. And I've said many times, I will never forget the sound of a thousand dogs barking. Hmm. Um, one of the consequences of Hurricane Katrina was the passage of what's known as the Pets Act, the Pet Evacuation and Transportation Safety Act. And this is an, uh, intended as an effort to establish Um, things like pet-friendly shelters and to incorporate animals into the human-centric rescue efforts. Um, It has been implemented with greater and lesser success in some areas, but many groups have done what we saw here in Colorado and and, um, trained themselves, equipped themselves to go in and rescue animals and connect with the community to both receive and disseminate information. And this is a wonderful advancement, I think. Mm. Well, do you want to offer a few more tips? I just wonder if you think that there are other lessons learned 
from the Marshall Fire, and I know it's still quite recent. Well, again, I would emphasize some of the things that that Mickey said. Just like you need a go bag, your family needs a go bag, your pets need a go bag too. You need to have identification, veterinary records, uh, food, and some kind of, if, if it's cats, you need carriers, dogs, you need leashes. And if you have three cats, you need three carriers. Two dogs, you need two leashes. And just as you would practice for a human evacuation, practice putting that cat in the carrier. I don't know a single cat who loves being put in a carrier, but you can practice ahead of time hmm. so that you know how to do it without stressing the cat out and getting scratched or bitten. Make sure you have veterinary records. If your pets are microchipped, make sure that information is up to date. Alternative contacts are up to date. And, um, you know, the 72-hour the plan for, for food and for pet medication is the same applies to your pets as applies to the human members of your household. I like to say animal problems are people problems. Hmm. And anything we can do to reduce the risk to our animals will improve outcomes for people too. I have a very weird cat. Bob loves to jump into the carrier. I think that's partly because I take him to the park in it. But this notion of practicing, rehearsing feels really important because it, if it turns out that your animal needs a treat to get into a crate, that is something to have in your muscle memory ahead of time. I guess before we go, I'd like to talk just briefly about that law you mentioned, uh, the Pets Act. Uh, if it were ideally implemented, if it lived up to its full potential, what would that look like to you? Well, it would include animal rescue in existing human-centric entities, and it would reduce duplication of effort to some degree. So instead of having many groups trying to do things individually, it would coordinate to improve efficiency. And it could provide um, better technical animal rescue support if animal rescue were a legitimate part of existing emergency services. Um, and it could recognize the importance of animals to our communities. There are significant psychological consequences to losing a pet in a disaster. And um, it could, acknowledging that there, the importance of animals could help outcomes for people as well as animals. Professor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Glad to be here, Ryan. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Leslie Irvin is a professor of sociology at CU Boulder, specializing in the role animals play in society. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a storied block that's finally getting its due. Blocks plural, actually. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's alpine tundra is most visible in Rocky Mountain National Park, above 11,400 feet. It's a spectacular environment, but cold and severe. Still, life persists. The firs and pines at the edge of the tundra look more like shrubs, stunted and gnarled from frequent exposure to icy hurricane-force winds. And they may take a hundred years to gain a mere inch in diameter. Above timberline, many flowering plants have dense hairs to protect against the cold. The largest of these is the alpine sunflower, 
also known as the Old Man of the Mountain for the white hairs covering it. For 10 long years, it stores energy in its roots, and then it blooms, but only once. As the writer Ann Zwinger wrote, the Alpine tundra is a land of contrast and incredible intensity, where the sky is the size of forever and the flowers the size of a millisecond. A Colorado Postcard from Colorado Public Radio, with the support of Coble & Company. You could say that Judge Raymond Jones chose family over fear. There were risks moving into a mostly white neighborhood, but he had a vision for where he wanted his kids to grow up. Jones was Colorado's first black appellate judge, and now Jones's former home will be protected. The Denver City Council voted to designate two blocks of Steel Street, a historic landmark. CPR's Anthony Cotton witnessed a special sort of encounter there. Two old friends met in Denver recently, reestablishing a decades-long relationship. <laughs> My friend? Oh, man. How are you? You're cold. It's good to see you. Oh, it's great. You're looking great. I know. Everything's going well. (laughs) I mean, everything's fine. Everything's good. Everything's good. They're treating you well. Very well. Raymond Jones moved into 780 Still Street in the mid-1970s and lived there for more than 40 years. Howard Canole lived across the street. On this December afternoon, the pair reminisced about their shared lives in the Congress Park neighborhood. Cano remembered his initial interaction with Jones. I came over here when he first came in, and I said, welcome to the neighborhood. And we embraced, shook hands, introduced ourselves, and he says, you never know how you're going to be accepted. He says, thank you very much. Do you remember that? Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> I seen him in the neighborhood and wanted to know all about him. And I got to meet him. Raymond Jones was born in Pueblo and attended Colorado College, where he was only one of five African-American students at the school. He went on to get his law degree from Harvard in 1971. After working in New York, he returned to Colorado, this time to Denver, to clerk for the then Chief Justice of the Colorado Supreme Court, Edward Pringle. At the time, blacks in Denver were discouraged from living in Congress Park, but Jones says he was undeterred. So I did a lot of driving up and down the streets just looking at houses. I saw this house and this yard, and I said, oh my gosh, I've got to have that. I wasn't even married, but (laughs) I knew at some point I was going to get married and I was going to have children and they were going to have lots of room to play and be safe, where we could invite neighbors in and invite neighbors over, use it to do the kinds of things that neighborhoods do. I just knew that I wanted a, a really neat, safe place for my children. And I, I got that, and that was a wonderful, wonderful thing. It was just one of those situations that they have in movies. Jones's son, Raymond II, says he also carries warm memories of his childhood home and the neighborhood, perhaps with the exception of having to shovel the geometric-shaped steps at the house, which he called the bane of his existence. 
I always realized that it was a, a special neighborhood, not from living in it myself, but seeing other people's reaction to where I lived was how I became cognizant of how special our home and our community was. And then as I got older, you take that natural pride in where you live and understanding the time frame in which dad purchased the home, you take even more pride in him um, you know, making that choice so long ago. Great choice, dad, all those years ago. <laughs> But while Howard Canole and the other families were literally embracing Jones, there were exceptions. Most notably, then-Denver police chief Art Dill, who would park his cruiser in Jones's yard, telling him that he didn't belong in the neighborhood. Jones recalled having a conversation with Chief Justice Pringle during that time. He was very interested in where I was living. Did I have a nice house? Did I have a good place for my children to play? And uh, <laughs> I'll never forget... I told him everything was perfect, except that the chief of police insisted on parking on my yard, which got in the way of my children being able to play in my yard. And as I sat there with the chief justice, uh, he picked up the telephone and called the, the chief of police and told him, you get that car, get that car the hell off of his yard. <laughs> and the next day it was gone. <laughs> that wasn't Jones's first experience with racism. In the mid-60s, during his sophomore year in college, Jones decided to go to Alabama to join the civil rights marches in Selma, hitchhiking to the south from Colorado. My mother was from Kentucky and had uh, relatives in Kentucky. I looked at a map and figured I'll get a ride as far as I can and, and then get a ride. Uh, <laughs> I know I, it, it scares me even now when I think about it. But I, I got to my aunt's house and I told my aunt that I was going on to Alabama. And, oh, she threw a fit. She got on the telephone. <laughs> She told my mother, tie him up, do anything <laughs> you can, but don't let him go. But Jones did go, and he said the experience helped shape what would become his life's work. It was amazing. It was nothing short of amazing. It was like having an entire library happen in front of you. I will never forget that fear. I... I, and I, you know, I was a jock. I was a running back in football. I didn't think there was much that could scare me. <laughs> That's how silly I now know I was. <laughs> but when I got down there and saw what the police were doing, hitting people with clubs and knocking them to the ground and then kicking them, I just knew I was going to have to live a life that in my own cubicle of existence, I could reach out and help people. I, I just knew I was going to have to, to learn how, how to deal with that, and if possible, how to help change that. 
Jones became an appellate judge in 1988 and served on the bench for 32 years. Half of that time was spent on the Colorado Court of Appeals, where he wrote 1,400 opinions with just three overturned. Jones returned to his alma mater as an instructor. He also taught at Metropolitan State University of Denver and somehow managed to help found the Cleo Parker Robinson Dance Company as well. Now 76, Raymond Jones was diagnosed with dementia and Alzheimer's disease about four years ago. According to his son, having his longtime home designated an historic landmark is part of a fitting tribute to his legacy. Dad is very modest, and I respect him for that. I'm not as modest. Dad is a brilliant man, and the things that he has gone through and experienced in his life and overcome are things that you see in movies and you read about in books. And I'm filled with an immense sense of pride in having him uh, as a father, and now he's a grandfather. And the things that, that he has accomplished on a personal level resonate. What dad is experiencing um, with the early stages of dementia and Alzheimer's is very hard for me to deal with because he is such a brilliant person and he does have such a brilliant mind. So to have his mind, in theory, attacking him, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult to grapple. But this designation means a lot to dad. It means a lot to me, my sister, our family. And we're appreciative and we're thankful to our local neighbors and community for pushing and understanding that there's a lot of history in this community that they maybe could have highlighted, um, but they chose to highlight dad and his accomplishments in his career. And that means a lot to us and it means a lot to dad. I'm Anthony Cotton, CPR News. As we've said, Raymond Jones was the first black person to serve as an appellate judge in Colorado. His former home in Denver's Congress Park neighborhood is now a historic landmark. A group called Historic Denver played a big role in that designation. We're going to put it into some context. Annie Levinsky is executive director. And Annie, nice to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Help us understand why this effort went beyond a single home. It includes two full blocks and what, like 19 homes, I think. Yeah, so it's a historic district. So you're right, it's 19 homes. It's actually just the um, the eastern block face of those two blocks because the western block faces are already in a different historic district mm. um, that was created a long time ago in the 1990s. Um, so this effort really, I think, got underway in part because the neighbors began talking after the, the blocks were surveyed as part of the Discover Denver project, which is a partnership between our organization and the city of Denver that's going around the entire city, um, documenting the building types and uh, trying to uncover stories. 
And that research actually um, began to uncover the story of Judge Jones. Neighbors had come out and talked to our survey teams and mentioned um, the importance, you know, his importance and, and which house was his. And so that really got neighbors um, to begin to talk about the significance of their block and the, that larger context that it isn't just about the one house, but about the relationships among the homes um, that really fostered sort of a special um, dynamic on that block. It's a very tight knit block, very uh, close socially. What is the name of the uh, historic district? What is the official name of it? Yes, the official name, it's a long one. Um, <laughs> it's um, the East 7th Avenue Historic District Steel Street Extension okay. uh, because it is adjacent to that existing uh, East 7th Avenue district. So I'm really curious when a designation like this is, well, one proposed and then two approved, is it based on the quality of the architecture? Is it based on the history of the people who lived in that architecture? Does one weigh more than the other? Um, so it is sort of all of the above. Uh, we have designation criteria in Denver, and you have to meet multiple criteria. So it can't just be the architecture, and it can't just be the history. It has to be a combination of those things as well. There are some other um, types of criteria like geography and also cultural criteria, which were added just two years ago when the uh, designation criteria were amended um, in order to be more inclusive. So uh, all of Landmarks and districts have to meet at least three of those criteria. And so in this case, for this district, um, there is an element of architecture. The homes are really good examples of um, particularly the craftsman bungalow style. But there's also um, an important geographic component of its association with that, the parkway, uh, East 7th Avenue. And then, of course, the history and the association with important historical figures, uh, the most notable being uh, Judge Jones. You want to name a few others? Um, let's see. Uh, so there, uh, you know, the others sort of tended to date to the earlier years. There is an auto manufacturer named Arthur Swenson, um, a number of other individuals, um, actually from the Jewish community was an interesting thing that we found is over a third of the homes in the 1920s were owned by Jewish families at a time when the Jewish population in Denver was less than 3%. So that is, you know, was far, far above average, um, you know, I'm trying to pull up a few of the oh, other okay. names, but really the criteria was focused around Judge Jones. Okay. Well, there's more stories to tell, I suppose. Uh, indeed, the Denver City Council voted unanimously last month to approve this historic designation, 19 homes on two blocks. Uh, three current residents submitted the application, but not everyone who lives there was on board. And a number of objections were raised, especially around affordability and density. So let's listen to this testimony montage. I think that the judge's home should definitely be historic or made that way. But in general, historic preservation is absolutely a cause of gentrification. Now, I'm a native of Five Points, or I was a native of Five Points, and I've seen the damage that occurred from having a preservation in five points, five points became unaffordable and unlivable for people of Black African descent. Page 29 of Blueprint Denver explains the goal of creating a city where, and I quote, growth and development contributes more equitable and inclusive places rather than increasing disparities and amplifying gaps and how Denver must leverage public and private sector investments to avoid becoming a city where some areas show increasing affluence and privilege, while others are being displaced, not able to enjoy Denver's great quality of life. 
unfortunately, this designation runs completely contrary to these goals. When the city extends special privileges to the already privileged and exempts neighborhoods like Congress Park from their fair share of meeting our housing needs, we will see displacement in neighborhoods like Five Points because those are the only places where people are allowed to build. Okay, Annie Levinsky of Historic Denver, let's unpack that. Does this designation put the kibosh on denser housing in a city that needs more housing stock? Are there strict limits to what can be built there because of a designation like this? Um, no, I mean, really creating housing choice and affordability and maintaining historic places are not competing goals. Um, and, and that same Blueprint Denver plan talks about the importance of preserving some of the places in our city that matter and how each neighborhood can evolve in a way that um, reflects its context. Um, so the, the term I like to use is the idea of density without demolition. Um, and, you know, for example, the Steel Street District, the designation does not preclude the addition of new units on the block. Uh, for example, uh, right now, the zoning doesn't allow for accessory dwelling units, but that's the zoning that's unrelated to the historic designation. So let, if that zoning were to change. Let me just say, hold on, hold on, hold on. A lot of planning terms being thrown around for, here. So accessory dwelling units is a really clunky way of saying like kind of like mother-in-law suites or changing your garage right. into something that would be livable. Uh, but you're saying that that, that um, prohibition does not flow out of this designation. Continue, right. continue. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes people uh, misunderstand that. I mean, it doesn't mean that there's never going to be change in a historic district. So yes, you could build that that additional apartment on your property. You could convert your basement into an apartment. Um, one thing that I think is sort of interesting is that the Jones home, when it was first built in its early decades, was used as a boarding house. And that was really common in central Denver neighborhoods where the the primary owner might take on boarders or renters or might not even live in the house themselves, but have other folks living in it. Uh, and that and that happens in our historic districts already. Um, we see accessory dwelling units um, and internal conversions happening across the city. And, and that's really a sustainable way for these buildings to continue to adapt and serve our community to accommodate some of that density and create housing choice without sending them to the landfill. But just to bring this, uh, I guess, to like a uh, fair thee well, um, if I were an apartment developer, it's not that I could raise the judge's former home and build, you know, 50 units there. Right. I mean, you couldn't do that now or you couldn't have done that before the designation uh, in this location either. Okay. Um, so it's not sort of the choice that was on the table. Uh-huh. Um you know, and we hear from neighborhoods all across the city that are, you know, including neighborhoods in areas like Five Points or the other most recent historic district in Denver is La Alma Lincoln Park. Um, and that's a neighborhood with a really strong Chicano and Chicana history and cultural identity. And they looked at their designation as an opportunity to ensure that the current residents weren't displaced um, and that they could hold on to the things that were really important to them in the face of the pressure coming to their neighborhood. So I think, um, you know, designation applies to only 5% of the city. Uh, so there is a lot of uh, opportunity out there, both for growth within our historic districts and areas and outside of them. More recently, um, I'm, I'm talking about, uh, sorry, I've lost my place. I'm just going to admit it. I lost my place in the script. That's why this is so awkward. Okay, I want to talk about the Channel 7 building just briefly. This is it, 123 Spear. You know that Mm -hmm. building. Three Denverites pushed to designate it a historic landmark. And in May, the city council voted unanimously to deny that request. Uh, The building's owner was opposed to that designation. Is that why it failed, Annie? 
Uh, I, I certainly think it was a significant factor. And if you listen to the, the comments of council people, um, that was definitely a part part of that story. Uh, and it is quite different. I think it's important to underscore that's quite a different process than Steel Street. I mean, the criteria is the same, but on Steel Street, you had 19 owners, um, the vast majority of with of which were really supportive and excited about this. Um, and it took over a year to develop. Um, so it's a much slower process in that sense. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that was a factor on Channel 7. I mean, City Council has the purview to weigh a number of factors when they make these decisions after the robust process around whether they think it meets city plans, um, you know, the wishes of the owner, as well as the degree to which they feel like the building meets the, those criteria. Um, so they, they do have that purview to, to make the decision they think is best. Uh, in 2019, on Colfax and Pearl in Denver, uh, the Tom's Diner building was brought up for historic designation to save it from demolition. And that was later withdrawn. Eventually, there was a solution, Historic Denver, called a win-win. And I don't know, just in the last, we have just under a minute, uh, that's, I guess, just another approach to preservation. Right. And, you know, I, I, again, I want to differentiate between the sort of these district efforts, small district efforts, and these, you know, sort of flash in the pan individual properties that tend to get the most media attention. Yeah, um, yeah um, you're right. Tom's Diner went through the process and the process around demolition review is around providing a window of time for there to be some discussion and collaboration. Um, I would say in, in many cases that building is ultimately lost that goes through that demolition review. But in other cases, we sometimes our organization, uh, sometimes others are able to come up with a solution that's workable. Um, and in the case of Dom's Diner, that did uh, happen. That building will be rehabilitated. Um, you know, the owner was really satisfied with the outcome there. Hmm. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing it rehabilitated. Annie, thanks so much for walking this through us, walking us yeah. through this. OK, it's Friday, folks. Thank you, Annie. Thank you. <laughs> Annie Levinsky, Executive Director of Historic Denver. We discussed the recent historic designation of 19 homes covering two blocks of Steel Street in Denver's Congress Park neighborhood. One of the residences belonged to Raymond Jones, the first black judge appointed to Colorado's appellate court. And that is Colorado Matters for today and for this week, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Nathan Heffel, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, grateful you could spend time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC.